Open your Bibles to John 17. We're going to go through the whole chapter, and there's a lot to go through. So be ready, be, be attentive. I, I hope that you have um, a lot of your, your questions answered as far as what is God's response to what's happening in the world today? What, how does God have a plan to overcome racism? What is God's plan for the church at a time like this? And I'm going to tell you, in John 17, we see the, the final prayer, not the final prayer, but <clears throat> the last real recorded long prayer of Jesus. And he's praying before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays for his, his own glory. He prays for his disciples, and then he prays for us. And we're going to go through that. But there's something very key in what Jesus is getting at. There's a theme that runs through it, and, there's, um, and that is unity. And God's plan for the church right now is unity. Never has unity been more important for the body of Christ. And I want to remind you guys the power of unity. At times when, when we are struggling and the, the world is kind of blowing up politically and lines are being divided, arguments are happening, fights are happening, um, even within the church, disagreements and arguments uh, can happen. Within family, separations can happen over important things. Um, at that time, and that's the time we're in now, Man, unity really stands out. It shines bright. And what Jesus wants us to be united in is love. He wants us to be united in love. So, I'm titling tonight's teaching, That the World May Know Love. Here's a little context. We, we see, starting in John 14 through John 17, all the words in red. We see Jesus confronting a lot of things that his disciples are going to be facing after he leaves. And um, then in the end, he looks up to heaven and prays. And so before we get started, let's look up to heaven and pray as well. Father, we, we look to you. We look to you, our King, our Lord, our God. Jesus, when you, when you walked the earth, you were known as a man of joy. Lord, and uh, what does that look like in today's world for us as your body? What does that look like to have joy and, and Jesus, you are known for love. And, and Lord, as your body, we want to know what practically what can we do to cause the world to look to you? And how can we show your love? And God, you, uh, when you walk the earth, you were known for justice. But Jesus, we never see you um, confronting and coming against political parties, but you are always teaching us and coming against the enemy. The, the one that's ruling the world, the power that's deceiving the world. And, and God, you spoke against it so clearly. And so, God, that same voice, that same truth that uh, your son uttered 2,000 years ago applies today. More than ever in my life, I see it applying. And Father, we know that you know where we are you know what we're facing. You know what we're seeing as a church, as people, as a nation, and across the world. And you know what's happening. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would join us as we talk tonight, that you would give utterance to me, Lord, less of me and more of you. Father, we just ask that you would speak. It's amazing, God, to watch everyone have an opinion. 
The news is full of the opinions. The news is full of people in science and specialists. And, but God, we, want, we don't want anyone's opinion. We want your truth tonight. We just want to hear from you. All truth. The source of truth. And the source of love. So in your mercy, in your loving kindness, in your tenderness, in your long-suffering, and in your grace, would you join us tonight? Would you encounter our worries and fears with your truth? And would you combat the works and the lies of the enemy with your truth in your presence? We are your body. We are, are your children. And we love you, and we need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm excited about this section of Scripture. Like I said, it's a prayer, and um, it's a pretty intimate thing. When somebody shares with you what they've been praying, it's usually a time when you're going to pay attention to the conversation. Um, it's usually a close friend. Somebody intimate to you is sharing with you what they're praying, and it's, it's a personal time, and it's a compliment when somebody gets personal with you and shares what's on their heart. Well, here, God is sharing with us his heart. Jesus is praying, and he's sharing his heart. And he does it vocally, and he does it suddenly in front of all the disciples and the crowd that was um, there. And starting in verse 1 of chapter 17 of John, I love what Jesus does. It says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said. I love that he lifted his eyes to heaven. What he's saying there is that, God, you exist. You are real, and I'm, you're above us, and I'm looking up to you. And when, when we're in worship and we raise our hands, we're saying the same thing. We're saying, God, you're real, and I raise my hands to worship you. I can't see you, but I know you're there. And so I lift my hands to worship him. And that's what God, Jesus does when he lifts his eyes to heaven. And it says, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Amen. I love this part. So Jesus says the hour has come. If you go back to John chapter 2, Jesus looks at his mother who says, hey, uh, we're at a wedding. There's no more wine. You got to make some wine. And that's my paraphrase. And Jesus says, what have I to do with you? My hour has not come. And he's talking about glorifying himself, coming out and, and showing the very power of God through his life. And what happens after Jesus dies? He's resurrected and he's glorified. And Jesus is praying for that moment. Wow, what an hour, this hour that's been coming his way. His crucifixion and his glorification. Well, here we are. And he says, you've given me authority over all flesh. And I'm giving eternal life to as many as you will give me. And that, Jesus is saying, hey, I will give eternal life to anyone the Father gives me. And eternal life is this, just knowing the one true God. And it's a pretty awesome thing. When I'm faced with, in church, when we're faced with the crisis that's happening around the world, we have eternal life. We know the one true God. And there's our comfort. And this is what Jesus did for us. And to know Christ whom you have sent. 
There's a couple of things that Jesus continually brings up here throughout this chapter, and it's knowing God as being an answer to all of the world's problems and knowing that Jesus was sent by God. Knowing God and knowing that Jesus was sent by God. Verse 4, Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, that's pretty cool. He summed up the entire lot of his work to do is to glorify God in all the earth. Church, that's what we got to do. We've got to, in the face of everything that's coming our way, church, we need to glorify God. There's a place to glorify God in every situation. And right now, the glory of God needs to be seen throughout this world. So Jesus says, I've finished my job. I've glorified you on the earth. I love what he, what he says next. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus will later talk about how he was sent by his Father. Well, where from? From heaven. From the glory of heaven, Jesus humbled himself was sent by his father and came here. And now Jesus is saying, all right, it's time to restore that glory. It goes beyond that, though. Jesus does, he doesn't just take his original place before the earth was in the Godhead. He doesn't just do that. He gets exalted above every other name, and the glory is even greater than it was before. Now we, the body of Christ, get to glorify God in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is looking forward to being restored to the presence with his Father in his heaven, on his throne. We have a day to look forward to as well. And the, the older I get, the more I look forward to a restoration where my body is restored and all of those things. But we have a day that's way beyond, way beyond anything this world could ever offer. There's a day when the world will be restored where racism is done. I'm tired of it. I am absolutely tired of it. And uh, I can't wait for racism to be over. Guess what? Homelessness will be over as well. Bias will be over as well. Religious hatred will be over as well. All these wars will be over. That day is going to come, and we are going to be glorified in that day. Now, Jesus is alluding to something that unites us, and we're going to talk about that in a minute toward the end of this teaching, toward the end of this chapter. But what if every day we started our prayer the way Jesus did? Lord, glorify your Son in my life. What if that's all we did to be an answer to the problems in the world is lived to see God glorify His Son through our lives? I think that's the beginning of an answer this world is longing for. So now we're going to see Jesus pray for His disciples from verses 6 through 19, and then verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for us as well, and those who are coming after us, our children's children's children, should the Lord not tarry. Jesus says something really cool. I have manifested, verse 6, John 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Okay, so Jesus says, all right, God, I have revealed who you are. I've manifest your name to the world. I've manifest who you are. That is to bring to light something no one else is really seeing. Manifesting who God is. Manifest your name, meaning the entirety of who you are. 
Jesus was entrusted to show us the whole world who God is, to manifest who God is. And guys, church, that's our job too. We, at this time, can't be silent as a church. We need to manifest God to the world who doesn't know him and doesn't see him. We need to bring him to the forefront, forefront, bring him to the light, and manifest him because that is what the world needs, and that is what the world is attracted to. Jesus himself continually points people to God, and so we are too as well, continually point people to God and who he is. And right now, a lot of the church is doing it. They're saying God is not hate. God is love. God is not racist. He created every race and calls them his own. When we do that, we manifest who God is. Jesus said, I manifest your name to the men who you have given me out of the world. So now Jesus starts referring to the world and throughout this, this section of scripture, when he's referring to the world, he's referring to this fallen system. He's referring to uh, an entity that lives just shortly and then it dies. That's what the world ultimately ends up being. Where God is eternal forever and ever, the world is fallen and its end is drawing near. So out of the world, out of this fallen system, God has given Jesus these disciples. Jesus is faithfully showing us, okay, I am going to disciple you. I'm going to manifest who your father is. And I'm going to show you who God is. That is the goal of discipleship. So, he says, they have kept your word. Keeping God's word isn't just obeying and following rules. Keeping God's word is receiving it in faith and doing something with it. It's it's actually taking God's word and living in accordance with it. Much more than just following orders. Keeping God's word, if you remember the story of Mary, who um, bore Jesus, and it says that Mary hid everything Jesus said in her heart. She watched everything Jesus did, she listened to everything Jesus said, and she hid it in her heart. And when we keep God's word, we hide it in our heart. It's a treasure to us. It's special to us, just like Jesus was special to Mary. The disciples have kept God's word. Now he says, now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Wow. So he's established that the ones you've given me have come to faith. They truly believe the words that I've given them are from you, that they have faith in you, Father, and they believe in me. And they believe I came forth from you and that you sent me. Okay, they've got saving faith. And this is the key to discipleship, is that people believe in Jesus, that God sent him, and that the words Jesus spoke are the words of God. Those are absolutely fundamental to our faith. In verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I love this because it gives us insight into how special God thinks you and I are. When God looks at me, when God looks at you, and uh, he, he looks at us as a treasure that his son died for. When Jesus looks at, at us, he's like, that's a treasure, someone so precious. That's God's child, and I'm going to pray for him. 
There's something special in the way that we are to love one another and look at each other and say, okay, you're precious because you're God's. And I should do anything for you because you're God's. You are God's child, and that makes you precious. So I'm going to pray for you. How cool would that be? How, how would the world look at us if we looked at one another and treated one another like we're God's children? Literally precious. That we, liter- that we pray for one another. That we do anything. Like um, a, a child who knows something is precious to their parent cares for that thing. Right? The last thing they want to do is break the, the fine china or whatever it is because they know it's precious to their mom and dad. Well, Jesus, he cares for us because we're precious to his Father. And in his eyes, that's priceless. And so what does he do? He prays for us. He's praying for his disciples. How cool, because I know that there were times when Jesus got impatient. Like, oh man, how long must I be with you, you uh, of little faith, right? And, he, and he's rebuking his disciples at times, but he never lost sight of how precious they were, that they were given to him from his Father, and, and he took that care so personal. Well, church, he cares for us that personally right now. He cares for you right where you're at. He knows that you're the Lord's. He knows that you're God's child. You're precious, and he's interceding for you on your behalf in heaven right now. And I hope you know that. I hope you know that he speaks about you, that the Lord talks about you. You're on his lips. I hope you find encouragement from that today. So why would he say, I do not pray for the world? Well, he gets into praying for the world really soon here. But once you're saved, there is a, a, you have been set apart. You have been set apart for God's purposes. And those of us who are saved, those of us who are the children of God, we are about to see, we quickly become the hope of the world. And that's why he would pray for us, because he has a plan to reach the world. So that brings me actually to my first point. We are kept for unity. We're kept for unity. In verse 10, Jesus says, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. We are kept through the name of God, his name, who he is, his reputation, all together, believing in the one true God, together we are kept, and we are kept for unity. And why would Jesus put so much emphasis on unity? He said, keep through your name those of you whom you have given me. We are kept in God's name, and it has everything to do with his power. It has everything to do with who he is. God is love. He's omnipresent. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful, the beginning to the end. The creator of all things who wasn't created by anything. That name, that God. And then Jesus says in verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. People, family, when if you want your children to follow Christ, you keep them in his name, right? You share Christ. You talk about Christ. You talk about the Bible. And Jesus is saying, I am keeping them through your name because I want these disciples you've entrusted to me to know you so that they can be one 
as we are one. The unity of the Father and the Son. Verse 10 is pretty cool. All mine are yours and yours are mine and they have glorified and I am glorified in them, he says. I love that. It's pretty cool because that sounds like a wedding, doesn't it? It sounds like um, once you get married, everything that's yours is mine. Everything that's mine is yours. But the highest hope for a marriage would be that in it, Christ is glorified. I think in that we have the, uh, the perfect picture of a perfect marriage. And that has a lot to do with our relationship with the Lord. So he says, keep through your name that they may be one as we are. In verse 12, he writes, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Let's think about this. It's pretty cool because right now, who has Jesus kept? He's kept the disciples. And, and what were the disciples? We have a fisherman. We have a tax collector. You know what's interesting is Simon the Zealot really stands out to me right now. I think um, in America we're experiencing a lot of things and we're hearing a lot of what the Constitution has to say about our situation in this life. And I love my country and I can get pretty zealous about what what's happening in our country. And it comforts me to know that, hey, Jesus, he, one of his disciples was Simon the Zealot. He's referred to as being a zealot. You can imagine he's zealous for Zion. He's zealous for Israel. He's zealous to be set free from Rome. He's probably one of those very, very adamantly seeking their Savior, someone to come and save them from the oppression around them. Well, today I think we have some zealots. We have some people, uh, if, in casual conversation, you're going to hear the Constitution, you're going to hear civil rights, you're going to hear gun rights, you're going to hear all these things. Just know that if you're talking with a zealot, God loves zealots too. Guys like me sometimes. It's pretty cool to see, though, he kept them all, and they all united under the name of God. We don't hear of Simon the Zealot fighting to save his nation. He gets won into a different kingdom, and he's kept in that kingdom through the name of God. Verse 13, he says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My next point is united for joy. We are united for joy. The purpose in, in, in being united, being the church, being together, is for joy. And it's his joy. It's the Lord's joy. It's not as, as we would have necessarily represented in the world by popular culture or any of that. So what was the joy of the Lord? Because we, we will say this as our mantra, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, what was his joy? I think it's going to be interesting when I think of bringing my kids into my joy— if I want my joy fulfilled in my kids, well, I can say, well, I want them to experience things I've experienced. Then my joy will be fulfilled in them. And it's fun to share the things that bring us joy and to share those experiences. Well, then if Jesus is doing that in our lives, what brought Jesus joy? I would have to say a few things come to mind really quickly. I, I have to imagine raising people from the dead was a joyful experience. I mean, it's kind of comical uh, to think otherwise. Ah, uh, Lazy, yeah, just stand up, Lazarus. Um, no, he was, it's a joyful experience. To heal somebody must, be, must have been joyful. 
Nurses have joy in doing that. Doctors have joy in doing that. To restore somebody's broken broken heart must be so joyful. As a pastor, when I can counsel somebody and give them a truth and you can see their countenance change, man, do I have joy. It gives me so much joy. To bring healing to the hurting must have brought Jesus so much joy. Well, what if he wants to fulfill that joy in us as a church? You guys, if we're united, we can do amazingly powerful things that Jesus did and know the fulfillment of his joy. But I think the ultimate thing here, guys, is, church, a converted heart. A heart that is fulfilled in the joy of the Lord is one that absolutely loves to do the will of the Father. And Jesus pointed that out to him. Hey, every word you gave me, they know came from you. If I said it, they know it came from you. They know what I am here to do is to fulfill your will. And it brings me joy to do that. So, church, if in being united, we can fulfill the joy of the Lord, we're going to delight in doing everything God tells us to do. I think at the end of the day, the happiest Christian is the one who delights to do what God is telling him to do. And that's, it's as simple as loving God and loving your neighbor and the joy that comes out of that. The world needs to see that joy. They need to see that happiness. We reach the world united in joy. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because you are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Okay, so from the Lord's perspective, he's just talked about fulfilling his joy and now I gave them your word, Lord, and the world has hated them. And it's like, well, that doesn't sound like the most positive twist of words. But from God's perspective, to be loved by the world is to be an enemy of God. What Jesus is talking about here is these people were once walking in the world. You gave them to me. I gave them your word. And now they're hated for your truth just like I am. They're one of us now. They're on our side. They're on the side of righteousness. They're on the side of truth and life. And this is a statement of pleasure, a statement of joy, because the effectiveness of God's word is to strip us of the blinders of the world. It's to cause us to see that God is still powerful. It's to cause us to see the power of love versus hate. And when God does that, it's called the process of sanctification. So we're united for joy's sake. So what does it look like to be hated by the world when you're a Christian living your everyday life? It's not too often, actually, as Christians, we're we're picked on. It's not too often somebody looks at us and, and hates on us. When I was first saved, a long, long time ago, there was a guy who hated Christ. Just absolutely hated Christ, and he made it clear to me. He happened to be a good friend of a family member. And I was radically changed in the, the time I knew this guy. And he turned around after I was saved, and I started to share Jesus, and I had a Bible study in my apartment. He really began to attack me. And I was like, wow. I mean, if you don't like Jesus, don't like Jesus, but you don't got to attack. And he really did. He attacked and attacked and attacked. And then he was very vocal and loud against Christians. I've had uh, another friend who, man, 
I hope he's changed, but he absolutely turned on me the second he found out I was a Christian. He kicked a chair, and he said, why don't you Christians just go? If you were going to be raptured, why don't you just go? And I couldn't believe it, and it didn't make any sense to me. But it was an evidence in my life that I was with God, that his word had actually changed me, convicted me, and that God was going to use my life uh, to confront some evil. And it was the saddest thing in the world. I never had an opportunity to talk to that first man I mentioned. He died in a boating accident not long after I was saved. And all I can remember thinking was, well, God, you were faithful to get him the gospel and, and to get him a choice. So it's not fun if the world hates you, but it is something you're signing up for when you, when you decide to become a follower of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, Jesus says, I do, not, excuse me, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, now that they're saved, come on, let's, let's pull chocks. As soon as somebody's saved, take them out of the world. No, because there's a purpose in us being in the world. The world needs us to stay. And the way the world is uh, trying to silence the body of Christ and trying to keep it quiet, long before COVID, by the way, the way they're trying to do that is evidence to the importance of us actually being here. In the church, we are the most important group of people on the planet. The most important because we have truth. And truth doesn't change. And the answer is love and the answer is Christ. The hope to have any heart change from a heart of hate to a heart of love is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus isn't saying, hey, I want the church out of the world. He's definitely not saying, church, hey, build a big commune, put a big fence around, and hide because the world hates you. He's not saying that at all. In fact, he's saying, God, just protect them from the evil one. And that brings us to our next point, is that what we see happening around the world has a lot to do with the power, an evil power in high places. The Bible says that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in high places. That is why we're still in the world. And that is our, our mantra, is to, is to be the love and the light of Jesus Christ in a world of darkness. So church, let's not pray ourselves out of here. Let's pray ourselves to be more active. Let's pray ourselves to be more vocal. Not out of the world, protected from, from the enemy, but definitely not out of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Man, church, what if we can say that? I am not of the world, just as Jesus was not of the world. I'm, I'm not being swayed by the temptation of fame and popularity. I don't care about my high place that, that I've been entrusted with. I'd actually, I want to go down low and, and minister to the least of these. What if we're not of the world, just like Jesus was not of the world? What, how awesome. That would be the highest compliment ever afforded to any of us, church. Less of me and more of him. Less of the world and more of Jesus. So now, united in sanctity. The sanctification pro process. So once you become saved, it's a, the Christian word is sanctification. It's a purification. It's a process that takes time to make you more like Jesus. And sanctification is what we need to be united in. 
All of us in agreement that we all want to become more like Jesus. All of us in agreement that the world would be better off if all of us were more like Jesus. Right now, it's, it's uh, a debate between black and white on our streets and in our city. Yesterday, I drove through downtown, and there was still some protesting. And the truth is, I, when I become a Christian, when you become a Christian, your race disappears really quickly And the goal is to become like Jesus. It's a higher calling than to become like any race. It's to become like the Son of God. And that takes precedent. So Jesus says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. They've been set apart. We've been taken from this position in the world and put into a new position. We'll talk about that in a second. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world... I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. This is awesome. This is Discipleship 101, is that if those you want to disciple, before they're ever going to change, you've got to sanctify yourself. And in doing so, they will see an example that they want to follow and sanctify themselves. Oftentimes, kids grow up in Christian homes, And when asked, what's the difference between your home and another home out in the world that's not Christian, they have a hard time figuring out any difference. And the question, the challenge I have for you is, are you sanctifying yourself so that your family will sanctify itself? Are you sanctifying yourself so that your colleagues at at work will sanctify themselves? Set yourself apart from the world just as Jesus set himself apart from the world. God said, be ye holy, for I am holy. Be set apart as God is set apart. And that's our mission. We've been sent. We haven't just been saved, and we're not being taken out of the world. We're actually being sent into the world. We're being sent into the darkness. The the light of the world, the salt of the earth, Jesus calls us. And we're on a mission. I'm the missions pastor, so it had to come up. We're on a mission and if there's darkness, as long as there's darkness, we're, we're called to be light. We're on a mission. And so how was Jesus sent into the world? Humbly. He was sent into the world humbly. And we need to be sent into the world humbly as well. We, do, we don't need to be yelling. We don't need to be uh, sending out a parade in front of us. We don't need to be launching fireworks. We need to be humble and loving, gentle and kind, and we'll reach the world. But united in being set apart for God. United in sanctity. United in mission. Verse 20, Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, And I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Somehow, when we are all united, the world says, they're from God. How does that happen? I don't think it's that difficult. I really don't think it's that difficult. Church, if we want to stand out, we need to be united, united in love. The world will look at us and say, those are God's kids. They have something no one else in the world is offering. Those are God's kids. And we need to be united. Because when we are, we're on mission together. And we can reach the world together. 
So he says that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. So Jesus went from saying, I do not pray, I'm not praying for the world, because when he prays for us, he inadvertently is praying for the whole world to know that Jesus was sent by God and that Jesus is the Savior. You guys, we have to be united. We can't forsake unity to talk about face masks to talk about race, to talk about politics, to talk about the answers, to talk about the Constitution. We can't, as a church, give up that, that unity that will save and reach the world for the sake of a temporary conversation. A temporary answer that, in my life, has actually never come from, from any government. So united in mission. United to see the world reached. The last point tonight is united in glory. I love this part. I'm going to start in verse 20 again. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That means we are going to have to talk (laughs) for people to continue to believe. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Amen. And verse 22, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. When I first read this, I was like, what, what does that even mean? Where is the Lord going with that? The glory that he has given us, his glory. And he's doing it that we may be one. And so the next final point is, oh, sorry, not the final point. The next point is united in glory, lacking nothing. In the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19, God talks to Israel and he says, you guys are, you're to be my, a royal priesthood, my own special people. He says, I want to make you a holy nation. And he makes them that promise that if you keep my covenant, you are going to be a holy nation for the whole world to to come to me, to glorify my name through you. Now, Israel wasn't able to do that. They weren't able to keep the covenant. And we know the story. Eventually, Jesus does come, and he does keep God's uh, covenant. He, He does fulfill the law. And now we have us who follow him today who have been taken out of the world and set apart by God for sanctification. And that is what he's talking about. 1 Peter 2, chapter 9 tells us, Peter says, Do you not know that you are a royal priesthood? Do you not know that you are a holy nation? That you are God's own special people? I'm going to read to you. Even a, little, even a little bit more of that. It's such a powerful section of Scripture. There it is. First Peter 2.9. Peter's talking to believers. He says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter is saying, you guys are, you and I are literally the fulfillment of what God was talking about in Exodus chapter 19. 
royal priests, a holy nation. You guys, that is the glory that we've been given. We've been taken from the world. We've been set apart, sanctified, set apart for a, a royal purpose, a godly purpose. It's cool. You can go to all the colleges, that the, the finest and most incredible colleges that the world has to offer. You can get doctorate after doctorate after doctorate until you're earning honorary doctorates on top of that. But you can never earn a degree that says royal priest. It's not something the world offers. We can be united in glory because we are all, in the eyes of God, royal priests. That's beyond my imagination. The closest thing I can imagine to that type of unity, if we look at each other in that way, and we unite as we look at each other in that way, would be similar to being in the United States Supreme Court. Once you're a judge and you're in the Supreme Court, there's no higher place you can go. And you can all be united on that level. There's no more striving for another place, another office, another, another accomplishment of mankind. And God has given us that office, this high office of royal priests. You guys, we're not going higher than that. He says that we'll command angels. We're going to be given authority. And there's a lot that's yet to come. But in this life, it doesn't matter if you're Billy Graham. It doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're a royal priest. And you're giving a place, given a position of glory. And we should unite in that position and not get dragged into the common debates of the world. Imagine if you go to sit in a divorce court and you're hearing a husband and wife fight over custody of their kids. And in that court, the judge starts yelling at everybody and brings himself down to the level of the couple that's fighting. That would be the equivalent of us getting caught up in the debates of this world. We're supposed to be like that judge, sitting above it, knowing better, walking wisely, introspectively. And so let's unite in the glory that God has given us. And now I'm going to close just a couple more verses from our Lord before we pray. Verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. He's praying for that day when we stand in his presence in heaven. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. This is the best. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The last point, united, that the world may know love. You guys, the world will know love when we are united. And what Jesus is saying, he's, he's saying, I want the world to see in, in believers, in my followers, your love, the same love you have for me, I want the world to see it in them. I love the, the idea of buying my wife flowers. I, I love the idea of her coming home and knowing, man, my husband loves me. In my case, it's usually doing dishes or something. But I want my wife to know that I love her. I want my kids to know that I love them. And it's one thing to buy flowers so she can come home and say, wow, I know my husband loves me. But imagine this, that she goes to her office and she's working and someone shows up and says, I have a delivery for Beth. 
And everyone's like, well, yeah, there's Beth. And he brings her flowers and sets them down in her work in front of everybody. And all the other ladies in the office look, and they're like, oh, man, her husband really loves her. And then they all get mad at me because I was that husband. No, just imagine this, guys. That's what God wants. He wants you to be sitting in this world, everything you're doing, walking about, going about, and he wants to give, send flowers to you so that the world would look at you and say, that person's really, God really loves that person. It's really that simple. God wants to send you flowers so the whole world would say, man, I want the love that that person has. The love that is in that person from God, I want that. And that was the, the, the closing sentence of Jesus' prayer for us. That the same love that's in the Father would be in us. That the world would see that love and say, that's what I want. That's what we all want. The world would see that love and say, that's what we need to see on CNN. That's what we need to see on the news. We need to see God's love in people. And so guys, what is most on the line here, the highest hope for the world right now is that we stay united as a church. And we stay loving. We stay caring for one another. That the whole world could see God's love. And that's what's going to begin the change that, we, that we're all praying for. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your, your patience, your kindness, your gentleness. Thank you for the joy that you offer us in unity. Thank you for the power that you offer us as your followers to, to reach the world. And Jesus, I echo your prayer. Lord, would you protect us from the evil one? Deliver us from evil? deliver our nation from evil. Lord, the, the blinders that the enemy has put over the eyes of people, putting their faith in government, putting their faith in hope and policies, and all of those things, God, Lord, that only works if the righteous are the ones making the policies. And so, God, we put our hope in you. We ask for revival for our nation, for our cities and our streets. But above and beyond all of that, God, would you unite your church don't allow your church to be divided. Don't allow arguments and petty things of this world to separate us. God, cause our hearts to love one another. Cause us, Lord, to see one another as your children, precious in your sight. Cause us to pray for one another. Cause us to sacrifice for one another. Lord, you say you sent us the way you were sent. Well, Lord, give us humility. Cause us to go out and in humility... Lord, reach the world, and in love, reach the world. But also, Jesus, give us power. You worked in mighty acts of power. And give us power. Give us words. Give us an ability to heal. Give us an ability, Lord, to speak truth that changes hearts. Lord, allow us to be used by your Spirit to bring salvation to the world. The change that really needs to happen, God, we only look to you for that change. You can change our government. You can change our hearts. You can do that, and we ask you to do that in Jesus' name, that you would be glorified through your church. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time in your word, your precious, precious word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.